Under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. That's our theme verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 for this week's Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today, Senior Pastor Perry Duggar begins a new series called Sufficiency in Christ. Today's episode, New Covenant. If you want to watch a video of this week's message, listen to worship, or search through our message archives, visit brookwoodchurch.org slash watch or download the Brookwood Church app. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with the Sufficiency in Christ series. We pray this message encourages you and your walk with Christ. And now, Pastor Perry Duggar. Who are you telling about your Jesus? When Jesus comes in, he makes changes. Can you testify to that? So we continue this week our survey of 2 Corinthians. Are you reading 2 Corinthians? Let me see some hands. Good, good. It's It's a very interesting book. As I said, I think it's probably the, maybe the most pastoral book, most personally pastoral book written by Paul to a church he founded. Today's message is entitled New Covenant. And the covenant is new as compared to the old covenant, which was given by God to Moses and contained a number of laws that needed to be obeyed. Also, it had rituals and ceremonies. All of that was included in the law. The theme I've chosen for today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, part of verse 6. Under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. And that's life eternal. The new covenant, first of all, is expressed in the gospel. Now, last week, Paul had just explained why he did not come to Corinth. He told them in advance he planned on coming twice, in fact, and then he didn't show up. So some of the false apostles who were kind of competing with Paul for the people's attention and support said Paul wasn't reliable. He was even deceitful. You couldn't trust him and they shouldn't follow him. He's not qualified to be an apostle. Well, Instead of showing up to debate that in person and really rebuke the people, instead he sent a letter. But here he adds that he was led by God, and he is led by God in all of the steps he takes. Verse 14 of chapter 2. But thank God he has made us his captives. You ever think of yourself as God's captive? That he controls all? Sometimes we think God's at arm's length to us. But does God own us as our father? And continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. So the path that Paul traveled, which cities he approached where he stayed and how long he stayed, was led by the Spirit of God. And Paul's saying that it would lead to triumph because the gospel of Jesus will fulfill its purpose. Isaiah 55 tells us. We continue in verse 14. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance 
rising up to God. You know, like the aroma of the temple sacrifices. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, unbelievers, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. Have you ever wondered why some people were so eager to hear about your faith story? To hear your testimony, your witness? But other people were offended, even angry, because of your faith. Anybody had that experience? And you didn't say anything. You weren't condescending. You weren't arrogant. You said nothing at all. But look at this passage. Take this passage literally. Your life gives off a fragrance. And to those who are being drawn to God by the Spirit or belong to Him, that Spirit is very pleasant. But to those who are unbelievers, that Spirit, as this says, reminds them of death and doom. That's why people react so harshly, negatively towards you. Because your faith, as I said, without saying anything, but you're always displaying what you believe. And your faith reminds these people of the reality of God. And that includes the standards of God, his morality, and also his judgment. And that's happening even when you say nothing. That's why our culture today is so intent on silencing the Christian voice. Why? In any way. Prayer in schools, prayer after football games, a nativity scene put on the courthouse lawn. You think, why? Because, see... It's, it is offensive. It breathes of death and doom to these people. Even though we go, well, that's relatively harmless. Believe it or don't believe it. But that's not how they feel. Because your life is a witness to their condemnation. With you saying nothing at all. Does that explain to you why you've experienced some of the things you have? And that's why they're so aggressive against any sign or symbol of Christianity, though not against Islam. Hasn't that struck you as odd? No resistance to the practice of, of Islam, the Muslim faith, accommodation, and yet great resistance to the Christian faith. It's because of this. Verse 16, it says, and who is adequate for such a task as this? Now, Paul's questions declared that he could not, he knew that he could not by himself lead people into eternity. His sufficiency and ours. 
is always and only in Christ, not in ourselves. And so we follow God to spread good news. We can't convert people. We spread good news. God has to regenerate. God has to convince. God has to confirm. Verse 17. You see, we are not like many hucksters who preach for personal profit. Now, this huckster is, a, is an interesting word, and you'll have a star. Many of your translations have a star, and they'll kind of explain it a little bit. But it's, it's a Greek word, kempeluo. Now, you don't need to know that Greek word, but it's interesting that, that what he's saying here, he's talking about con artists. He's speaking about, like, street salesmen or hawkers, they're sometimes called who deceives buyers into purchasing cheap imitations of the real thing. Now, how many of you have done that? You've been to New York City, and you went on Canal Street, (laughs) and you went behind a sliding panel, and that Louis Vuitton... Or who else? What else did they have up there in that, that, that treasure trove? Oh, yeah, but no, no. In Canal Street upstairs, with, this, is, this is bags, man. You get, those, you get those Lorexes on the street. Louis Vuitton. And who else was up there with Louis? Prada, Prada, or Pravda. Which one is it? Prada. And you got that thing for $25. And you thought it was legit. What they were selling, what do we call those things? Knockoffs. And some of you have those watches. A friend of mine went to China, brought me back this beautiful watch. Wonderful. I don't know. One of those. It was a name I didn't know. Simple, like tag. Somebody told me that's a real expensive watch. And so I had this fancy watch. I mean, it was, oh, it was impeccable. I had this, put this watch on and. And so we went on one of these cruises, you know, and we end up in um, the Bahamas, one of those little brief cruises. And you know how you go down the street and they have all these expensive stores. And so this watch was advertised in one of these fancy stores, you know. So I go in there and this guy, you know how dignified they are. I said, hey, what's my watch worth? Sir, we sell model, no model that looks like that. And two weeks later, that thing fell completely apart. <laughs> I had a knockoff from my friend. Well, people are making knockoffs of the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about here. These hucksters are selling you a gospel out of the trunk of the car. They're spreading it out on a blanket in the park. And you don't have to pay much to get it. But it's not worth much when you have it. See, Paul had in mind the false apostles at Corinth. And they were peddling a 
contaminated version of the gospel. An adulterated version. And that just means something false is mixed in. It wasn't pure. It was a mixture of some of the gospel's truth and then some Jewish legalism or rule keeping to the people. But the people liked it. People love to follow the law, even though they don't follow it. But they love to have the rules, you know what I'm saying? And so these people, for hundreds of years, they'd been told, this is how you please God. You obey and you obey and you do this. And then, and then the religious leaders had written up all these other rules that supposedly they kept and nobody else could. But they had all these rules and they found security in having all their rules. And so when the gospel came and it was salvation by grace, it didn't sound right. So what they did is they adulterated it and they gave them a little bit of both. A little law, a little grace. I mean, let's be honest. Some of us are nervous with too much freedom. But the gospel sets us free. Verse 17. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. How many people are in our audience? Mark, how many people are in your audience when you share the gospel? But how many matter? How many are you trying to please? Only one. We only have one. When we share the gospel, see, we make a mistake if we think these people listening are the audience that matters. We share the gospel that pleases God. And God's spirit can bring it to life in those people. But our goal, see, if we start trying to curb this gospel around so somebody will because, you know, we're a little bit ashamed of God. We're a little bit embarrassed about him because he's a little bit too strict and he's a little bit, there's a little bit too du- ju- much judgment. So I got I to gotta, I gotta give God a better face, you know. I got to make God a little bit more sellable. I got to make this gospel a little bit more sellable. So come as you are and stay as you want to be. Do whatever you want. That's not the gospel. See, we, we can't alter the gospel to make it more acceptable to people, more sellable. Something pulled out of the trunk at a discount. Because, see, we can only speak with Jesus' authority when we accurately express God's word. Now, we may be well-motivated, we, we may really care about the salvation of people, and so we soften all of it. But I wonder if we've mixed in something fatal in our version of the gospel. And it amounts to Louis from behind the sliding door, or the low Rex out of the inside of the coat. Somebody will buy it but they'll get what they pay for. 
Do we accurately express God's word knowing he is watching? And our efforts must please him. I didn't say with arrogance. I didn't say with condescension. Never. The gospel should never be offered in any of those manners. But are we careful to express the whole biblical gospel? Or are we reshaping it so people will accept it? The new covenant is evidenced, you see, by life change. Chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to praise ourselves again? That's what he's being accused of, remember, by these false apostles. Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on their behalf? Surely not. See, the the false apostles in Corinth, they were attacking Paul because the people were listening to Paul. They, you know, so they wanted to move him out of the way. They wanted to diminish him because they wanted to be the spokesman. They wanted to be influential, powerful. And the false apostles were likely accusing Paul of pride and thinking, you know, he, he, he thinks he's the only one that knows the gospel. But Paul deflects their accusations by asking these two questions that confirmed his calling. Are we beginning to praise ourselves? Or do we need letters of recommendation? See, the traveling preachers often did have letters of recommendation to establish their legitimacy and their authority. But Paul said he didn't need a letter. Verse 2. The only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. See, it was the transformed lives of the Corinthians that gave testimony of the validity and power of Paul's ministry. They were Paul's letters of recommendation. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ, showing the result of our ministry among you. See, it's because only Christ can transform and save. We... People can obey rules... And if a church gives out a list of rules and you try to follow them, you'll, you'll behave outwardly better for a while. But you won't be changed. You won't be changed. Because you see, the only true change that happens is, is that when, when a, a pastor or a teacher or a Bible study leader is accurately proclaiming the scripture. It's Christ who often speaks, can speak, and does the transforming. I have no power of transformation. 
Zero. I could give you some rules that might make you behave better, but I can't transform you. Christ alone transforms. And, and that's why so many of you through the years have said, well, you said something to me and it changed my life. And most typically it was not anything I ever said. Because what happens, and it's happening in some of you right now, while I'm speaking, the Spirit is speaking to you within. Now, He may be mirroring some of what I'm saying, or you may be hearing something that doesn't have anything to do. That's why I'm so urgent to, to come back to worship when you feel comfortable, or come with a mask, or, you know, and we, some people are, are wearing masks and distanced upstairs still. But I think when we gather, the Spirit is working in our midst in different ones. So I may be speaking audibly, but the Spirit is speaking audibly to you throughout this room. And so you leave with what He wants you to hear. And it might not have anything to do with what I'm saying. And it's certainly better than what I'm saying. This letter, he continued... And the letter being a believer's life, where he's talking about here, is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone. Now those refer to what? Say it again. Ten Commandments. The, the tablets of the covenant. And they were given to whom, where? Moses on Mount Sinai. Carved not on stab tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Now, do you think the new covenant is only in the New Testament? Mm -mm. Jeremiah spoke of it, Jeremiah 31, 33. And he said, in the new covenant, I will write my law, where? On your heart. Now look how different that is. I mean, do we obey all of this? Even if you know it, right? So why is it that if you know what it says, you don't do it? Because, see, there's word from God that is true, but it hasn't become part of you. You see, when God writes something on your heart, guess what? You do it. Because it's now who you are, just like you said. So we've got to understand clearly when the, when, when the Spirit of God writes His Word in us, that becomes truth and we always live by the truth we believe. But sometimes what we believe is not truth, it's a lie. And so the Bible may say one thing, but you really think I'm really going this direction because I'm not convinced that's true because we always do the truth we believe. 
And that's why there's a difference between the law being in a book, on a stone, and written into our hearts. See, that's transformation. Now here Paul is confronting the false apostles because they mixed the Christian message of salvation by grace with circumcision, you know, because people have been doing this for generations. And suddenly he's going to say, oh, you don't have to do that, by the way. I mean, you would think somebody, well, I'm relieved. But, but they've been practicing it so long. Some of us grew up in churches that had some very strict practices and you got so used to doing them. Or if you didn't do them, you hid when you didn't do them. That you thought that was part of the gospel. And it never was. So these, these false apostles, they, they add the circumcision. They add some Old Testament ceremony, some Old Covenant ceremony. They put in some legalism, some rules to go by. Because, because if you're a Christian, you need to do these rules. But see, the old covenant is always a condemning message. And you can't have grace and a little law without contaminating all the grace. You can't add any law to it at all without it being contaminated. Because no one can obey the law perfectly. And do you have to obey the law perfectly? Do you? Wayne, you have to obey it perfectly? What's your chance of obeying it perfectly? Zero. Because James chapter 2 tells us if you break the law in even one small area, you've broken it all. Because perfection's the standard. So there's no room for error or mistake. Well, with the coming of Christ in the gospel, was the law revoked? I heard a yes, I heard a no, I heard a no over here. The no's are right on this one. Because how could this God's standard of morality change? God didn't mature and change his mind about a few things. What he believed about marriage, he always believed. What he believed about, about sexuality, he's always believed. What he believed about the way we should treat other people, he's always believed. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't get new information. So his, the, the law is a record of the morality of God cannot change. Well, are we excused from obeying the law? Somebody said no over there. What do y'all think over here? Krista, you're hesitant over it. No, you said no. No's right. The new covenant doesn't excuse us from obeying the law. But we're not judged by the law for condemnation. The Spirit enables our obedience. And the imputed righteousness of Christ covers all of our violations of it. Unfortunately, our culture's adaptation of this is so I can do anything I want. God doesn't care morally. The problem is if you believe that, 
you may not have that law written on your heart. Because that's like saying, oh, I'm, I'm married to a beautiful woman that I've loved for many years, and she doesn't mind if I commit adultery. You see my point? Which I don't know where she is. She could have stood up and shouted then, wherever she is. Um, and we are confident of all this, verse 4, because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we're qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. See, Paul's answering the question that he asked earlier at 2.16, who is adequate for this? He said, we're adequate, but only by God's grace and by his help. Because see, God qualified Paul by saving him. He appointed him by choosing him as apostle. He equipped, equipped him for service through the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5. And then in verse 6, it says, He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. And this is a covenant not of written laws, law of Moses, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death. Because the law could not justify. The law identified and condemned sin. But under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life, eternal life. So here's the question. All of us are letters. Our lives are letters. Everybody got that, right? Is your life a letter from Jesus? And everybody can read it when they get around you. They sense it. Does your life reveal the Spirit's work of transformation in you. Because we're all a letter. What we are is obvious. I mean, all of us, as, as Paul has said, he said, you're the letter that confirms my ministry. Well, guess what? Every one of us in this church are letters that con confirm whether this church has a valid ministry. And people judge our church by you as the letter you know some years ago I met a guy and gave, he gave us a great compliment he said you know I work with a guy that's over there at Brookwood Church and this guy really knows the word and lives it and I thought boy what a what a testimony and all of us are letters what does your letter say because people are always reading it they're always reading it the new covenant is experienced as glorious Paul continued to contrast his ministry with the ministry of Moses verse 7 the old way which is of course old covenant with laws etched in stone who etched them in stone did Moses have a, a chisel Hmm. God wrote it with what? His finger. God wrote it with his finger, yep. Led to death. Condemnation. Separation from God. Though it began with such glory. Anybody know the Greek word for glory? 
those of us that grew up in particularly Baptist churches ought to know this. Doxa. Because we used to sing what? The doxology. And maybe other denominations did too. I just grew up Baptist. But the Greek word doxa refers to the splendor of God's visible. Usually it'll say his manifest. That sounds more holy, doesn't it? Than visible or his perceived presence. I'm not sure how much of it would have been visually apprehended and how much of it is perceived. But it's referred to in Hebrew by what word? Y'all get a big extra credit if you get this one. Shekinah, the Shekinah of glory. You're doing well, but let's see if I take it back. Where is that word found? In Deuteronomy? In Noaronomy. It's not in the Bible at all. <laughs> the, the word Shekinah does not appear in the Bible, though I even thought it did somewhere. It doesn't. It's a rabbi's word that spoke of the presence of God. And particularly behind the, um, in the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah of glory set between the cherubim on top of the mercy seat, which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. But the Shekinah, which was a Hebrew, Hebrew rabbi's word, not in the Bible, literally means he caused to dwell. So in other words, there is nothing in the Bible that describes the presence of God. It just says he is. And then it describes the effect of the presence of God. And so we continue. That the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses. So it said it began with great glory. And then I diverted just to explain glory a little bit. But it had such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. See, Moses' face was radiant from his exposure to God's presence. He was in the cloud on, the, on Mount Sinai. He asked to see God, and, and he wanted to see God's face. And God said, you can't see my face and and live, but I'll let you see my hinder parts. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. But somehow he had an intense encounter with the presence of God. And when he did, it left his face shining. Y'all think collagen's good for your face? You get, you get some of this, the presence of God. And Moses' face, not only did it shine, it, the, sh the light was so brilliant, nobody else could look at him. They didn't have any Oakleys or not even any of those bought out of the trunk. But it was too bright for people to view. But it was temporary. God's holy, pure brilliance affected Moses but it didn't transform him 
It didn't transform him. Verse 8. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? Permanent spiritual life. If in the old way, which brings condemnation, if the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? That's quite interesting, isn't it? It, it makes us, what is another word for right with God? Somebody said it back here. Sanctified, but sanctified is a progressive thing. Justified, or simpler, righteous. What righteous means is that you are right with God. Sanctification is more about actual change of you. Justification is a declaration of you. It's imputed. Sanctification's imparted progressively. But we'll get to that. But the new way permanently justified people. But the old way was glorious. Well, why was it glorious? Well, because it did reveal the nature of God in terms of his righteousness, in terms of his holiness, in terms of his moral purity, but also in terms of his justice. Don't miss this. For God to be glorious, he must be just. Now, what that means is that we are judged for our sins perfectly, completely. But the new way, the new covenant is more glorious because you've already understood about the, the, the purity of God, the justice of God. So now we're going to show you the mercy of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God that makes us right with him. So if you're a believer today, are you perfect in the eyes of God? Absolutely perfect in the eyes of God. Absolutely. Verse 10. In fact, the first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. For if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new which remains forever. See, the old covenant commands righteousness. The new covenant confers it. The old covenant exposed sin that led to death and condemnation. The new covenant eradicates sin and also erases sin's control over you. And it leads to eternal life. When the law revealed God's pure standard that required perfect compliance, it condemned sinners. But it drove them to the Savior. I think it's very common, and it was my experience, that when we first encounter the Spirit of God, the first experience is of our own sin. Did that happen to any of you? The presence of the Spirit showed the overwhelming presence of my sin. 
And then in that crushed ability, which you've already been given eyes to see, you flee to the Son and are saved. Verse 12, since this new way gives us such confidence of God's forgiveness, we can be bold to spread good news. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory. Why do you think Moses covered his face? Let's be human. So he couldn't see it, but why? He didn't want to fade, which means he was... He was embarrassed. I think he was embarrassed. Now, y'all can put a more spiritual word. But I think it's going away. I mean, for a while, I mean, he is somebody, you know, with this glowing face. I'm covering my face so you won't look on me because you can't see because I've got all this. But it's going away. Though he covers it so they can't see. I think he was embarrassed. But you can attribute whatever you want. Um. He was concealing the fading quality. You know what I'm saying? He was covering up. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, it was read weekly in the synagogue, the same veil covers their minds. So they cannot understand truth. And this veil can only be removed by faith. By believing in Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered by that veil and they don't understand. These Jews had hardened hearts. They rejected the identity of Jesus. And along with that, they rejected the gospel message as the fulfillment of the old covenant. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, verse 16 says, conversion, faith, the veil is taken away. Do you remember that day? Do you remember when the veil was taken away and you could see? And it's taken away because nothing stands between you and God anymore. It's the same as as the the temple veil or the curtain was torn. Because now if, if the temple was standing, which it's not, I think God probably had a hand along with the Romans in destroying it. Because people would keep flocking there trying to, to get right with God. And it's destroyed, but the curtain was torn. And so every one of us, as God's children, we could walk right into the Holy of Holies. Because in fact, if you possess the Spirit, you're living in the Holy of Holies. For the Lord is Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's freedom from sin through forgiveness. It's freedom from condemnation through justification. It's the freedom to obey. You see, if we possess the Spirit, we have the ability to obey. The ability to do right and the ability to experience the presence of God. Verse 18 So all of us who have had that veil removed and can see and reflect, can see and reflect the glory of God. And the Lord who is the Spirit 
makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Susan, you think you're glorious? What about that guy beside you? Is he glorious? Yeah, he didn't hesitate to tell me this morning he was glorious. How many of you think you're glorious? See, here's the problem with us as humans. We almost think there's something wrong to say we are glorious. Well, you didn't cause it. God gave it to you. But you are glorious. And that's what they see. And that's what they can't understand. And that's what they're sometimes angry about. But if you have the Spirit in you, you are glorious and you're becoming glorious. And we call that by another name. What? I heard it over here a minute ago. It's sanctification. But sanctification, see, we're, we're comfortable with saying, oh, well, we look more like Christ. That means we're becoming more glorious by the day. And we'll progress through ever greater degrees of doxa, glory. You aren't normal. You aren't average. You are glorious in Christ. Look at this verse. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and you become ever more glorious like him. See, we're justified when we're saved. We're sanctified progressively by the Spirit. And it leads ultimately to what? Justification, sanctification, glorification. That won't happen for us probably until Christ returns. But are you displaying the glory of God for all to see? Our counselors will be here. And if you say, well, you know, some of what he said doesn't sound like it applies to me. Come and talk to someone. Because all of us should be letters from Christ that anyone can read. All of us should have the glory of God in ever-increasing amounts showing in our lives. It can't be hidden. They couldn't even look at Moses, remember? Our counselors will be here. They're also in the Care Connection room. If you want to talk to someone, pray with someone, be anointed with oil for healing. And now we will have our ministry plan vote. We, I gave it to you two weeks ago. We had a question and answer. And so now if you approve this proposed ministry plan and you will support it financially, I'd like you to stand right now. That looks like almost everybody. And if we all do a little bit, we will not have trouble carrying out God's plan for us in the coming year. Father, we thank you. Gosh, we thank you that you don't expect us to do what we need to do to be saved. But you provide all that's necessary. Lord, we thank you that once you justify, you don't leave us. You sanctify us and make us ever more like your son. Lord, we thank you for your grace.
we understand in part your glory. And we praise you, Lord, as you're making us ever more glorious. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. The spiritual practice this week, find a quiet place without distractions. Close your eyes and take in a few deep breaths. Ask God to show you one area in your life where you need Him to change you. Ask the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Our memory verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. Please email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our Connections team. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.